All we like sheep have gone astray. We turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That is the issue. Faith alone in Christ alone. Join with me in prayer before we begin our study of the Word this morning. Our Father, we're thankful for the fact that we have your Word given to us. This is not man's Word about you. It is not a record of these writers' spiritual experiences. But this is your Word, your truth, breathed out through the writers of Scripture in a way that oversaw what they wrote in such a way that it protected it and guarded it from error so that we can have confidence that this is your truth. And as our Lord prayed in the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, that we are sanctified by truth. Your word is truth. Very clear that the word truth there means your word. Now, Father, we pray that as we study today, that God the Holy Spirit would use what we study and the teaching of your word to challenge us, that we might continue to press forward in our spiritual growth and to constantly be prepared, be watching, be looking, knowing that our Lord may return for us at the rapture at any moment. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, on this Resurrection Sunday in 2017, we're going to have two messages this morning. That doesn't mean we're going to be here for two hours. I've been gone so much, we've had different things going on the last couple of months, that I reached a decision a couple of weeks ago that instead of having a message today focusing on the resurrection, that we would just keep going in our study of Matthew 24 and 25 because it's so critical. We've lost too much context and too much uh, continuity, and so we needed to do that. But this is an important day, so I didn't want to let it go by. And three times in the last three weeks, I have been asked almost the identical question. First time I was asked this question, I was asked at a dinner when I was in Washington, D.C. for the APAC policy conference by a Jewish lady sitting across the table from me and uh, raised this question. Uh, somewhere else along the line, someone else asked me this question, and then I got an email from a member of the congregation yesterday asking the identical question. Now, I may be a little dense and slow, but I thought, well, maybe the Lord is giving me some guidance here that I need to address this question. It's not even a spiritual question, but it's one everybody comes up with. So, before we look at, and I'll put the title slide up here, before we look at the parable of the wicked and righteous servant in Matthew 24, 
45 to 51, we will address this question. Why do we observe Easter on this particular day and date of the year? How do we choose when we observe Easter? Because it's a floating holiday. It's not the same every year. It's determined by what some people may think of as somewhat um, mystical or magical formulae. But there's a reason for it. And it also impacts in Christianity that there are different tra Christian traditions that observe Easter on or Resurrection Day on other days. So here's the question. Why do we observe Easter on different days between the Eastern Orthodox Church, so-called, and the Western Church, which would include both Roman Catholic and Protestant churches? And then, why is this date sometimes different and not close at all to Passover? When we know Jesus was crucified, at the same time the lambs were sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, Nisan being the first month in the Jewish calendar, and the fourth in their ritual calendar, ceremonial calendar, and then at that evening, at sundown, they would observe the Seder meal. Jesus is crucified on that 14th of Nisan, and then it was, uh, depending on when you think he was crucified, Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday, it was two th or three days later, that you have the resurrection. So, this goes back to a conflict in the, in the early church. And here's a new word for you. It was called the Quarto Deciman Controversy. Say that real fast two or three times. The Quarto Deciman Controversy. Those of you with a little Latin in your background have figured this out, that Quarto Deciman, Quarto means four and Deciman ten, so this means fourteen. So it has to do with a controversy over the fourteenth of the month. Now, those of you who are sharp recognize I just talked about the fact that Jesus was crucified on the 14th of Nisan. So in the early church, remember, the early church, even up to approximately 200 A.D., according to uh, some sociological studies, uh, indicate that at least 50% of Christians by 200 were still ethnic Jews. If you think about how many Jews were saved on just the day of Pentecost and the a few weeks after that, and the fact that it's probably six or eight years before the gospel really begins to go out to Gentile communities, then you realize that with that large number of Jews and the fact that Paul on his first, second, and third missionary journeys uh, always went to a synagogue first, so the initial believers in each location were Jewish, and when they have children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, and so forth, that they were still ethnic Jews, even though they were believers in uh, Yeshua as the Mashiach, as the Messiah. So in the eastern part of the church, where you had a larger Jewish population in the area of Judea, Galilee, Syria, Turkey, over into uh, the Mesop Mesopotamian area where Babylon is, there were still dominant Jewish influence, and so uh, they would want to remember the crucifixion of Christ on the 14th of Nisan, and that evening, instead of having a Seder meal, they would have communion. 
And then two days later, they would celebrate Easter. So in the Eastern churches, they celebrated the uh, date as opposed to the day of the week. In the Western churches, there was an emphasis on the resurrection as opposed to the crucifixion. And so they observed uh, the uh, uh, remembrance of the resurrection on a Sunday morning, which is when Christ rose from the dead. And they did it on the uh, first Sunday following the March full moon. Now, the problem that came up was that once every uh, seven years, now some of you are saying, well, wait a minute, you have leap year in there. No, you don't, because they were functioning on a, a Julian calendar at the time. You didn't have leap years. They made other adjustments that once every seven years, they, the 14th of Nisan landed on the same day that uh, the resurrection was celebrated. So half of Christians were uh, remembering the crucifixion of Christ, and the other half were celebrating his resurrection, and that was a little bit of a little bit of a conflict. And the way this developed in the second century was that you had a bishop named Polycarp, who was the bishop of Sardis. That was one also mentioned as one of the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning of Re Revelation. But Polycarp is, stands out in church history because he was personally mentored or discipled by the Apostle John. And he argued that according to John, who when he died was in Ephesus, that, that according to the Apostle John, that they were to observe a remembrance of the crucifixion on the 14th of Nisan and then have uh, communion that night. So he went down, to, he went over to the Bishop of Rome. They didn't have a Papa at that time, no Pope. So he goes over to Rome and they had a sit down, very nice, very cordial, very friendly. Each tried to convince the other of their view because in Rome they were worship, they were celebrating Easter on a Sunday. Uh, neither one convinced the other. Uh, Polycarp went home and uh, died about a year or so later. The next major issue, there were constantly arguments about this, but the next major event occurs around 190 A.D. when you have a different bishop in Rome, and he's a little more headstrong. His name was Victor, and he attempted to impose his authority. Now, remember, he's not a pope yet. It's the West trying to impose its authority on the East that eventually led to the split between East and West and the Roman Catholic Church and, and or, the Orthodox Church. But he tried to impose Roman tradition on uh, uh, Polycrates, who was the bishop in Ephesus. And he was going to excommunicate the whole East. Anybody who observes on the 14th is excommunicated. And Irenaeus, the bishop of Lyon, who incidentally was personally mentored and discipled by Polycarp, intervened and got him to back down. Uh, about 135 years later at the Nicene Council, it was brought up. This was one of the major decisions they came up with, along with articulating the, the Trinity. They settled it in favor of Rome, and then they came along and they just said, we're going to excommunicate anybody who uh, observes the 14th of Nisan. There's a hint 
of anti-Judaism here, not necessarily anti-Semitism, because frankly, you you see the the beginnings of replacement theology already in both the East and West are are generally anti-Semitic, and that's that's really growing at this time. But the West is more concerned with divorcing itself from any kind of Jewishness. Uh, because of Judaism and the Judaizers, so that's their their motivation. Um, but this is how Philip Schaff in his History of the Christian Church articulates it relating to the Nicene Council. He says, This council considered it unbecoming in Christians to follow the usage of the unbelieving hostile Jews and ordained that Easter should always be celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon succeeding the vernal equinox, which was uh, March, March 21st, and always after the Jewish Passover. If the full moon occurs on a Sunday, Easter Day is then the Sunday after. By this arrangement, Easter may take place as early as March 22nd or as late as April, April the 25th. However, the West did not always adhere to that. That is the idea that it's always the, the Sunday after. Even, no matter what the calendar says, it always has to follow the order of Passover first and then Easter. In fact, last year, interestingly enough, because I got caught in the middle of it, uh, Greek Orthodox, uh, the Eastern Church, observed Easter on the 1st of May, which was a Sunday. And then... But Passover was about a, a little more than a week earlier. Passover was on April the 22nd. But in the Western Church, uh, Easter was observed on March 27th, you know, almost four weeks before Passover. So that all of that came together as to one reason why the Eastern Churches split from the Western Churches in the 11th, 11th century. Now, the second issue has to do with the calendar. The first issue was whether or not to observe the day, the exact date, 14th of Nisan, and then resurrection two days later, or the day of the week, which would be, in their view, Friday for the crucifixion, Sunday for the uh, resurrection. And so, coming out of Nicaea, they had made this decision um, that Easter would uh, never fall at the beginning uh, or before Jewish Passover. However, the Western Church didn't didn't view that. The calendar change is a second problem, and it resulted as uh, problems in the Julian calendar. Julian calendar came into effect with Julius Caesar, 45 B.C., but it didn't accurately account for the length of days in a year. It was a little bit off, so there was a calendar creep, and every every few years things would shift a little bit so that by the time you get into the 16th century, you have a 10-day difference that's developed. Uh, as, to, as of today, there would be a 13-day uh, difference. So... They had to make an adjustment, and under Pope Gregory in 1582, uh, the Gregorian calendar was put into effect, was authorized to correct the problem. However, not everybody in Europe got on board at the same time. It took the British Empire, the Anglican Church, 170 years before they adopted the Gregorian calendar. Other places adopted it at different levels. The Soviets didn't adopt it. Uh, Russia didn't adopt it until 1918. So in 
Russia and Ukraine, they still celebrate some dates a little bit off from the West. They still celebrate the what they call the Old New Year in the, about the middle of uh, January 13th, uh, according to the Ju- Julian calendar. But the Eastern churches still use the Julian calendar to determine some ritual dates, and that creates this discrepancy. Furthermore, uh, for example, last year, because the vernal equinox uh, occurred in uh, in March, and right away you had a full moon, so the Western Church celebrated Easter after the first full moon following the vernal equinox. But because that preceded Easter, uh, the Greek Orthodox churches didn't celebrate Easter until after Passover, so that came uh, came somewhat later. So uh, the two dates, though, sometimes coincide as they did this year, 2017, did today. The two dates coincide when the full moon following the equinox comes so late that it counts as the first full moon after 21 March in the Julian calendar, as well as the Gregorian calendar. Now, that's not a regular occurrence, but it has happened more frequently in recent years, 2010, 2011, 2014, 2017, and according to one website, it will not occur again until 2034. So, Eastern churches determine their dates differently based on these calendar issues. That just had to do with when they were going to observe things. It's ritual. It's not doctrine. But the important thing is that they all recognize is that Christianity is grounded in a historical event that must be observed. It's not something that happened off in heaven somewhere or in some uh, spiritual or mystical realm, but it's something that was grounded in space-time history and was witnessed to by by well over 500 people. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. Verses 3 through uh, 8. For I delivered to you, talking to the Corinthian church, after he had been there, he left, they asked him some questions, and one of them had to do with the resurrection. said, I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. Notice how he always puts the authority on the Scripture. It's what the Scripture says. It's not history. It's not tradition. It's what the Scripture says. So he's referring at this time. There's no New Testament canon. He's referring to the Old Testament. He said, according to the Scripture, and that especially Isaiah 53 teaches that that the Messiah would pay for the sins of the world. And so he says, I... I delivered what I heard from according to the scripture that Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that was indicated in the event with Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights and that he was seen by Cephas this didn't happen in a vacuum Cephas was uh, Cephas actually was Peter's uh, Aramaic name He's seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. Of course, that would be minus Judas. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. You don't believe me? How many witnesses does it take to confirm something in a court of law? Two. That goes back to the Mosaic law. Two witnesses. Well, now uh, Paul is saying there are over 500 
eyewitnesses to the resurrection. If you don't believe me, many of them are still alive. You can go talk to them and get their first-hand witness. He says, after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater... uh, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that, he was seen by James, that is, the half-brother, the half-brother of the humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, then by all the apostles. Then last of all, he was seen by me also, as by one born out of due time. So that is our, our basis. How do we know that Christ rose from the dead? Because the Bible tells us so. And it's not just that we believe it in a vacuum, but because there is also confirmatory evidence that this is true from the eyewitness accounts and from the fact that it changed their lives. When Christ was crucified, they fled in fear. They denied who Jesus was. They denied having anything to do with him. And yet, after the resurrection, uh, you see that especially the transformation in Peter, there's no change. There is tremendous courage. And there is the willingness to die. Every, all, all but one died for the message of resurrection. They knew it was true because of their own eyewitness. And then Paul concludes in verses 13 to 14, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If nobody can rise from the dead, he's saying, uh, to the rationalist who says, well, that's just impossible. I've never seen it happen. It can't happen. And he says, look, if it can't happen, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. In other words, we're just wasting our time. Let's go home and have a party on Saturday morning and sleep late. Which reminds me of another story of a pastor who didn't show up on Easter morning. And uh, after the music, still hadn't shown up. The deacon said, well, we better send two or three guys to wake him up or to get him or see what's going on. Maybe he's ill. Maybe he's sick. So they went to the house, knocked on the door. He came to the door and he had his pajamas on and his robe and his coffee and his morning paper. And they said, well, pastor, how come you're not at church? He said, well, everybody always sleeps late. And I hear this from people. They sleep late on Sunday. They really enjoy it. They have their coffee and they read their paper. I thought I'd give it a try. And, you know, it's really nice. I don't have to be anywhere. I just sit here and I'm enjoying myself. And said, well, are you going to come to church? No, I'm having too good of a time. So they went back and they told the church what happened. And the next Sunday, it was standing room only in the church. The resurrection changes lives because Christ is risen. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24, and let's look at a few things. First of all, we want to remember the context. I keep talking about the context here because it is so important. If we misunderstand, and many do, the context of Matthew 24 and 25, then the result is that we will misinterpret what is being taught here and what is being said. So we have to keep remembering these key things. Second, we need to look at the be reminded of what we looked at last time in terms of the meaning and the significance of the parable of the fig tree. Third, as we look at this parable of the righteous and the wicked servant at the end of Matthew 24 and verses 45 to 51, we need to determine who the key players are. Who's the master? 
who are the servants. Fourth, we see that there's a massive failure here. What is the failure? And we need to understand the dynamics of that failure and then understand the judgment that occurs that is announced in verse 51, which says that he will be cut, the wicked servant will be cut in two and appoint and have his portion appointed with the hypocrites, and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A lot of controversy related to this, so we have to go back and review the context. Jesus is talking to his disciples. In Matthew 23, he has announced seven, one textual issue, maybe eight, judgments on the Pharisees and the scribes for being hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. That's in the immediate context, that same day, just that morning before Jesus left the temple, he walks across to the Mount of Olives, and on the way, he points to the beautiful buildings in this uh, rebuilt Herodian temple, and he says that a judgment is coming, and no stone will be left on top of another, and the disciples are flabbergasted. He's talking about the Jewish temple, he's talking about a judgment that is going to come on Israel and on Jerusalem. The context is judgment. I can't beat that horse enough. Okay? The context is judgment. The context is not rescue. That's rapture. The context is is judgment. So the disciples in shock over this, because they, they think that this is the eighth wonder of the ancient world. It's like, how can this happen? And so they want to know basically two things. When will this be? That's not addressed in Matthew, but it is addressed in Luke's account of, of, this, uh, of the Olivet Discourse. And the second thing is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, the word there that is translated coming is the Greek word parousia, which is not a technical term for the rapture. It is a general term for someone who arrives or comes for Jesus' coming may in some passages refer to the rapture, but it it also has that idea of presence. How will we know when you are going to present yourself as the king and bring in your kingdom? Remember, in about 43 or 44 days, as Jesus prepares to ascend to heaven in Acts chapter 1, what's the question they ask him? Lord, is it now that you're going to bring in your kingdom? It's all about the kingdom. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the king. And we have the message of John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When Jesus began to preach, it was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. When he sent out the disciples to the house of Judah and the house of Israel and forbade them to go to the house of the Gentiles, he said, This is your message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's all about the kingdom, the coming promised messianic kingdom that was postponed because of the rejection of Jesus' claims to be the Messiah by the Pharisees. That means that with a few notable exceptions like Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, the Pharisees as a whole were not believers. They they did not accept Jesus as the Messiah. So this sets us up with the context that Jesus is talking about answering this question related to his coming to establish the kingdom. Not his coming to rescue the church at the rapture, but to establish 
his kingdom. And he says, what's going to be the, the question is, what's the sign of your coming? And if you look at verse 30, you see that Jesus says specifically what the sign is. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And I believe that that is this brilliant flash of light that will penetrate the absolute darkness that occurs at this point, what is described as the day of the Lord, when the sun is darkened, the moon won't give its light. There's this impenetrable darkness on the face of the earth and it is pierced with this blinding flash of light that's the sign that just behind it is coming the Messiah, the King, who will establish his kingdom upon the earth. The sign is that brilliant flash of light. The sign of the Son of Man will appear in the heavens and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's coming to establish his kingdom. We know this occurs at the end of the seven-year period of Daniel's 70th week, the tribulation period, as he comes to defeat the armies of the Antichrist and to uh, destroy, uh, destroy his armies, to defeat Satan, and to bring judgment on rebellious man who's described as the earth dwellers in the book of Revelation. So, there are some key things to remember. First of all, this is Jewish background, as I've been emphasizing. Jesus is not talking about the church or the church age. He's talking about what's going to happen to the temple, and that is specifically tied to God's plan for Israel in history. He has a plan for Israel. It's not over with. Israel will eventually be restored to the land, and Jesus will establish that Jewish Davidic kingdom on the earth. Second, all of the events that are described in verses 4 through 31 in this chapter take place between the uh, beginning of Daniel's 70th week and the end of the 70th week. They all occur within the tribulation. The wars and rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the pestilences here are great universal signs. And as a sign, they're not the same as the wars and earthquakes and diseases and everything that we have today. Those aren't signs. They've been going on since uh, the fall of Adam. What happens here, Jesus says, these are related specifically to this one sign of his coming. So all of those events take place. And Jesus said in verse 33, as I pointed out in the previous two weeks, you also, when you see all these things, what are these things? The wars, the rumors of wars, the earthquakes, the pestilence, all those things, the abomination of desolation, the persecution of Israel. When you see these things, you will know that the, that the end is near. It's at the doors. So there is indication that, that you can see when it's near, when it is proximate. Now, we don't know if the rapture is near. That can happen at any moment. But this is talking about something that's giving a sign where you can know that it is near. So again, we're not talking about the rapture. And he says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation... He's not talking about the generation from him. He's talking about the generation that is within that seven-year period who sees these things going on. He's talking to the, the tribulation generation of believers. And so starting uh, in that section in Matthew 24, 32-35, which I looked at uh, last week... 
and the week before, it opens an excursus, that is a, a, a sort of a parenthesis, addressing that generation of Israel that lives during the tribulation to warn them. And this excursus actually continues on. He is, till the end of the chapter, he is addressing that generation. This informs them that they need to watch and be prepared because they don't know the, the day or the hour when, uh, when he will return. So, the fourth thing to remember is that generation is warned that they can only know that the time is near and they cannot know the day or the hour. Well, you say, well, wait a minute. We have a pretty good timeline back there in Daniel chapter 9. You spend a lot of time talking about that. We know that there's uh, it's seven years. Yes, but it, the countdown begins when the Antichrist signs the treaty with Israel. How many of us know when anyone signed any treaty? It might be reported in the news, but generally we don't know the precise day or hour that a treaty is signed. So they don't know when the, clock, the stopwatch began. Secondly, with all the chaos that occurs, I don't imagine they're pulling out their day timers or they've got their iCalendar all figured out and they can access it because they haven't had a battery work in their, in their iPhone since about the second day of the tribulation after the seal judgments began. So it's going to be real easy to lose track. They, they will know generally, it seems like seven years is almost up, but so they are to watch. They, they have these things that are going on. They've seen this, and so they know, From the text says, they know it's near, but of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. Jesus in his humanity in the incarnate humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, he has not been given this information to be able to disclose. So that is sealed off. Only the Father knows. Now, the next thing we saw was he uses this parable of the fig tree. Now, now learn the parable from the fig tree. You can tell that when you start seeing the little... Um, buds develop and the leaves start to come out that, that, that summer is near and it's not long before fruits come. And so in the same way, you can figure out that it's getting pretty close. And one of the things that gets pointed out here, Matthew 24, 36, uh, he makes the point that of this day and hour, no one knows. You just know that it is coming. It's near. And then, if you look down to verse 42, you can even underline verse 36 and verse 42 and connect them together, because verse 42 says, Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour. So, verse 42 repeats the idea of verse 36. In artillery, they call this bracketing. And literature, it's an inclusio. That means you state something at the beginning and state it at the end, and that shows that this is a, a tied-together integral unit. And the word there, Gregorio, means to watch, to be alert, to be awake, to focus on something. And this is used not only in this immediate passage, in verses 42 and 43, but it's used again in verse 13 of the next chapter at the end of the parable of the 
uh, wise and foolish virgins. Now, we'll come back and talk about that later, but see, what I'm pointing out here is the vocabulary here is important. They are to watch. They are to be prepared. That language is picked up in the subsequent parables to show that, that all of this is a unity, that the warning that is given in the parable of the fig tree is to say, you need know it's near, you need to watch and be prepared. Now I'm going to give you three parables, and the key idea in each of these three parables is that there's somebody who watched and was prepared, and somebody who didn't watch and wasn't prepared. And just as the illustrations here of judgment in verses 38, uh, 37 uh, through 39 deal with two groups of people, believers and unbelievers, and trust me, nobody thinks that these are two groups of believers. Everybody agrees that this involves two groups of, I mean, a group of unbelievers and a group of believers. There's some, though, that misidentify those taken as those who are taken in the rapture, which doesn't make sense because contextually we're talking about Israel, not the church. And contextually, we're talking about judgment, not rescue. So, they're to watch. They're to be prepared. And each parable that comes up focuses on somebody, some group, that isn't, uh, that isn't prepared. So, in between here, we see these, as I pointed out last time, this comparison with the days of Noah. Verse 37, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man is second coming terminology. The Son of Man is a term related to his humanity. But it comes out of Daniel 7, when the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, and is given the kingdom, and then immediately goes to the earth to establish his kingdom. So the term Son of Man tells us is, again, it indicates it's not rapture, it is uh, second coming. The two groups that are mentioned in, in um, 40, excuse me, 40 and 41, then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other, uh, the other left. A minute ago I misidentified that. Uh, glancing down, I said 37, 39, it's 40, and 40, 40 to 41. You have two groups, two men in the field. One will be taken. That's not taken in the rapture. That's taken in judgment. Just as at the time of Noah, those who were outside the ark died. They were taken in judgment. Those that survived on the ark survived to establish a new civilization after the flood. So... Two men, one's taken in judgment, the other's left behind. That represents the tribulation believers who survive to the end, who will go into the millennial kingdom to repopulate uh, the earth during the kingdom. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Once again, the one taken is taken in judgment. The one left is the one who lives and survives and goes into the millennial kingdom. And so, they're told once again uh, to watch. The theme here of the parable is to know that the coming is near, to watch, to be prepared. Uh, those that are judged, 
which will relate also to the wicked servant, mentioned in verse 50. The master of the servant will come on a day. Notice it's a day, not... It's the day. Later, it also mentions hour. Will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour that he is not aware of. It's not just Daniel's timetable of the 1,230 days, but down to the hour. So they are to watch. Now, the other thing that comes up in here that's important is Matthew 24, verse 43. I just touched on this briefly last time. I want to say a couple more things about 43 and 44 before we get into the parable. But Jesus says, but know this. Important word. He, we are to know, which means we are to understand this. This is written so that we can understand it. Some people get to passages like this in the Bible and go, well, it could be this, it could be that, it could be a third thing, but um, be warm, be filled. Bless you, my son. Let's close in prayer. That's not how God revealed things. He revealed things. We may disagree as to what it means, but it means something. It is not ambiguous. It may be unclear to us, but God intended it to be communicated. And I find that scholars who bail out on the meaning of something are really blasphemous. They're saying, well, God just didn't make it clear enough. I may make the mistake of misinterpreting it, but at least I don't make the mistake of saying God is ambiguous. God knows how to communicate to us. He created us in his image and likeness so that we can understand it. If there's a problem, it's a problem on our end, not a problem on God's end. Okay, so I'm not going to make the mistake of blaming God for being ambiguous. I may be wrong, but at least I'm not going to be blasphemous. All right. Know this, Jesus said, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched. Here's our word again. Watch. He would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. So the imagery here is of a homeowner, of a a man who runs the household and is in charge of the security of the house. And he knows... um, he's trying to take care of the house, and if he knew when the thief would come, then he would be prepared at that time and at that moment. But he has no idea, so he has to keep the alarm systems going, he has to stay awake, he has to keep his weapons at hand all the time because he knows that when the security is breached, he's only going to have seconds to respond and to react. And so that's the analogy. If you know when it's going to happen, then you're going to be prepared. That's the whole theme of watching that is introduced by the uh, parable of, of the fig tree. My point is the parable of the fig tree sets the stage for everything that follows through the end of chapter 25. It's not a conclusion to what is said before the parable of the fig tree. There are some that take that. That will cause a massive Uh, misinterpretation of the second half where you're trying to apply the rest of this to church age believers. Similarity, similarities there are, but remember similarities that don't mean identical, that things are the same. So, we have this imagery and it relates to the thief. Now, this idea of a thief, that Jesus is going to come like a thief in the night, runs 
through a lot of people's popular understanding of prophecy. And they think often that this refers to the rapture. And that's just not true at all. There was a very uh, popular song that was written and sung by a Jesus uh, Jesus rock musician in the early 70s named Larry Norman, who, after he read Late Great Planet Earth, took these verses and uh, applied them to the rapture. So a lot of people thought that, uh, that these are rapture verses. But the thief imagery relates only to the second coming of Christ. It's only used seven times in the New Testament, as I've got on the board. Matthew 24:43. Luke 12:39, 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 4. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 is talking about the rapture, but 1 Thessalonians 5 is talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord comes like a thief on the night, in the night, to the unbeliever. The surprise of the thief coming is always related to the unbeliever who's been suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, who doesn't believe he's going to be accountable for his sin, and suddenly, boom, there's the Lord and he's going to be judged. That's the imagery. The thief, of the, the thief imagery always relates to the unbeliever and relates to the surprise that comes when he's going to be held accountable in judgment before the Lord. So you have these seven references, and in each case it describes the sudden, unexpected arrival of divine judgment. It's not talking about rescue and the rapture. It's talking about the second coming. Tommy Ice has written about this. He says, The thief in the night imagery never applies to the rapture. Such language usually is descriptive of unbelievers and God's wrath or judgment related to the tribulation or second coming. The picture painted by a thief in the night shows it is the unbeliever who is caught off guard since he never really believes God is actually going to judge in history. So that is a very clear, very clear statement. One of the passages where that's used, as I pointed out last time, is in Revelation 16.15. Behold, Jesus says, to the generation at the end of the series of bowl judgments, at, at, the, at the time of the seventh bowl judgment, just before the battle of Armageddon, he warns them to keep watching because they don't know the day or the hour. He says, I'm coming as a thief directly goes back to this passage. Blessed is he who watches, same word that we have here, and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked, and they see his shame. Now, there, as I pointed out last time, there's some similarity here between some things that are said in the seven letters to the seven churches, but similarity doesn't mean they're the same thing. We as church-age believers need to live our life as if Jesus is coming back at any moment. So we too need to watch. We too need to be alert because at any moment Jesus can come back and, and we're taken to be with the Lord. Or we could die. Either way, it applies. But that doesn't mean that that's what this is talking about. The context here is second coming. So Jesus concludes in verse 44, Therefore, you also, notice that, you also, who's the first group? I believe the first group that is implied here is probably the church. The generation at the second coming also needs to be ready. So, therefore, you also be ready. 
For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Actually, I recognize that the you also there refers contextually to just like Noah and his family were ready, you also need to be ready. But I think it has an implication for the church age. Therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour. Notice the more the, the tighter time word, not day. At an hour you do not expect. So the, this is one of the words that's used here. Uh, Gregorio earlier and Atoimas here. Be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And it's picked up and used again in the parable of the uh, of the ten virgins in Matthew 25:10, while they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. So that parable clearly relates back to this um, this particular statement. So we looked at the things to remember. The meaning and significance of the fig tree is to be ready. Because you know it's near, you can't know the day or the hour, you know it's near. And now, who are the key people? Who are the master? Who are the servants? Jesus begins the parable and he says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Now, let me read the rest of it so you get the whole parable. It's short. He goes on to say, Blessed is the servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. That is, carrying out his responsibilities. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all his goods. So there's going to be a reward for the obedient one. That doesn't mean it's necessarily the judgment seat of Christ, the bema seat. Similarity is not the same. It just means it's similar. Uh, but if the evil servant says in his heart, my master's delaying his coming, and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him and at an hour when he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So, we need to ask the question, who are these Indicated here. The Master is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Messiah who is about to leave on a journey. After the crucifixion, resurrection, he will ascend to heaven. He's going to be gone for a while. So, this is the Master who is going to give responsibility to spiritual leaders. I believe that's the idea of the slaves. Now, he's talking about not church age leaders, but the leaders, the spiritual leaders of Israel. The term slaves, doulos, can also be translated servant. And what we find in the Old Testament is that a number of people in Israel are described as God's servant. There are prophets who are described as God's servants. You have uh, Isaiah, who is indicated as a... Um, Isaiah is indicated as my my servant. Uh, the prophets are all his servants. Passages like uh, Isaiah 20, verse 3, indicate Isaiah as his servant. In Isaiah 22, 20, he says, Eliakim is my servant. Uh, David is identified as God's servant in Isaiah 37, 35. 
all of those are leaders within Israel. So this is a term that really relates to understanding Israel. Now, when we get to the parable of the talents and the servants here, the same thing is going to apply. Servant is a term not for believers. See, there are some that come along and say, see, since they're both slaves... And later on in the New Testament, it talks about church-age believers as being you know, slaves of Jesus, servants of Jesus. Paul says that, I am a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ. That therefore, both of these categories are believers. That completely rejects and ignores the Jewish context here. The term servant has a rich heritage in the Old Testament and... Uh, aside from leaders being identified as God's servant, Israel is called my servant. In Isaiah 41.8, we read, You are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Also seen in Isaiah 41.9, Isaiah 44.2, and Isaiah 45.4. Many other places in Isaiah as well. And, of course, we have the Messiah spoken of as God's servant in Isaiah chapter uh, 53. And throughout the latter part of Isaiah, we have the reference to uh, the Messiah as God's servant. So when we understand this, that the servant represents leadership in Israel then that gives this a different twist. He's not talking about every believer. He's talking about Jewish believers in the tribulation period, but Jewish leaders. Uh, Not Jewish believers, excuse me. Jewish leaders. So, we have two groups. The faithful and wise refer to the good leaders, the good shepherds. Remember, uh, Ezekiel condemns the evil shepherds who are misleading and abusing Israel in the Old Testament. So the same thing happens here. The evil servants represent the Pharisees and the evil shepherds. In the tribulation period, there are going to be one, there's going to be one group who understands who the Messiah is. They're believers and they are going to wisely and faithfully shepherd uh, God's people. There's another group that is going to abuse them. So, in verse 45, we read, Who then is a faithful and wise servant? This indicates by the Greek grammar, it's a Granville Sharp rule, that that these are seen as the the two adjectives are are seen together. Uh, Synonymous, faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. So he's reliable, he's trustworthy, he's wise. Notice over the household, the household is Israel. That's the context. Not the world, not the church, but Israel. Further, he says that this one ruler is made a ruler over the household. So that indicates that this parable is about those who are leaders, not the not everyday, not the everyday believer, not the average uh, Jewish believer in the tribulation, but the rulers, their spiritual leaders. And they are to feed them that spiritual sustenance, not just physical feeding, but is the spiritual feeding. So this is in contrast to this whole chapter in Matthew 23 where Jesus just just really raked the Pharisees over the coals. You, uh, he says, woe unto you, uh, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Okay? Now, 
what we see is the one who is faithful is called blessed, which means he's fortunate. He, he benefits especially from the grace of God. Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Why? Because he will be given additional rewards. Matthew 24:47. I believe this is the judgment of surviving Jewish believers at the end of the tribulation period. It is not the judgment seat of Christ. Now, sadly, there's a big division among so-called free grace advocates. And in the free grace movement and grace evangelical society, more and more are taking a view that, that not only does the rapture occur back in uh, verse uh, 36, but if that's the rapture, then we're now justified in making these parables all about church-age believers at the judgment seat of Christ. And so the conclusion is that everybody here is, is talking about believers. The contrast isn't between believers and unbelievers. The contrast is between spiritual and carnal believers. And that is horrible. That is distracting and deceiving to most believers, and it has this interpretation has zero to do with the free grace gospel. But it has a lot to do with poor exegesis, poor methodology, and the desire on the part of many to read their theology everywhere they can possibly ram, cram, and jam it into the scripture. There is a judgment for tribulation believers who survive, and that's at the end of the tribulation period. So, as we look at this, what's the failure? The failure comes with the wicked servant, the evil servant, verses 48 to 50. But if that evil servant says in his heart, so this is a mental attitude sin, this is what he's thinking, he's thinking, wow, you know, he's delaying his coming. Now, of course, you and I can have the same kind of thinking today related to the rapture. He's delaying his thinking. I'm just going to live my life the way I want to, or delaying his coming. But this is talking about the context within the tribulation. My master's delaying his coming. Now, the evil servant is not a believer. This is the unbelieving Jewish leader who is abusing his uh, responsibility and the Jewish people because of his failure. He's like the evil shepherds in ex, uh, Ezekiel. Uh, Matthew 24, 20, 49, he begins to beat his fellow servants. He's an abusive leader. He's punishing them. And to eat and drink with the drunkards. The drunkards relate to those who are unbelieving Gentiles. He eats and drinks with the drunkards, the unbelieving Gentiles. He is in league with the Antichrist. And then we're told in verse 50, the master of that servant will come on a day when he is not looking for him at an hour that he is not aware of. What's the problem? He's not watching. He's not prepared. Why? Because he's not listening to Jesus. He's not a believer. So what's going to happen to him? What happens to him is described in the next verse. What is the judgment? The judgment is harsh. Now, let me give you another warning. Within the GES movement, if you take this as believers, and one's carnal and one's spiritual, then there's a warning here that if you're a carnal believer, then there's going to be a punishment at the judgment seat of Christ. But if you read 1 Corinthians 3, 
which talks about the judgment seat of Christ, that our works will be judged, that uh, we build our lives with various building materials, gold, silver, precious stones. That's the uh, work that's produced by God the Holy Spirit in us when we're walking by the Spirit, and then wood, hay, and straw. And that, as it were, God is going to reveal by fire the gold, silver, and precious stones. Notice, it's not talking in context that God's revealing the wood, hay, and straw. He's not The focus of the judgment seat of Christ is not to reveal our failures, but our successes. Now, the only reason there's going to be a negative, and 1 John uh, 2.28 warns that it's possible that we will be ashamed at His coming, and that's because everything gets burned up. There's no gold, silver, precious stones. There's no penalty assigned. There is an absence of reward, but there's not punishment. But that's not what free grace people teach. Some of them, some of them teach. And they say that what we have here is that the believer who's a failure will be cut in two and his uh, he, his destiny will be with the hypocrites. Now, the Arminian is going to say, see, he lost his salvation. But the free grace person and the lordship person, the free grace person is saying, no, he's going to have some kind of temporary punishment. He'll be in the extreme forms. He's going to be excluded from the kingdom. He's going to be in a place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. He's going to go through this horrible time of judgment. That is heresy. That is one reason I don't have anything to do with GES anymore. I think they are dead wrong in this, and this is misleading. And they've demonstrated some bad exegesis. The word hypocrites never, ever refers to a believer in Matthew. It always refers to the false religious leaders, specifically the Pharisees. It's mentioned in uh, Matthew 6, verses 2, 5, and 16. And and this is the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus is contrasting the righteousness that should characterize the believer versus the fake righteousness of the Pharisees. And so there's always this contrast there, and they're described as hypocrites in Matthew 6, 2, 5, and 16, and in 7, 7, 5. Later in Matthew 15, 7, he refers to the Pharisees as hypocrites, and then seven times, maybe eight, in chapter 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, Hypocrites and announces seven, maybe eight, judgments on the Pharisees as unbelievers. And that just happened. So why, on the basis of the usage of this word, would anybody think that this is talking about carnal believers? It is absolutely beyond me. So we have to be warned. I know some of you read their literature. Some of you are familiar with them. And this is becoming much more popular. And one of the reasons I've taken so long going through this is we have to correct these errors. And my job as a pastor is to protect the sheep from the wolves. And sometimes you have wolves wearing sheep's clothing. I appreciate a lot of other studies that some of these men have done. But in this particular area, I believe they are dead wrong. There is a warning, though, and that's what this warning is all about, to the tribulation Jewish believers to watch out. They have to watch. They have to be prepared. Don't be deceived by those who say, look, the Messiah is here or there. The Messiah is there. But you can watch for his coming, be alert, 
And those who are abusing the Jewish people in terms of their leadership in the tribulation are following in the pattern of the Pharisees and they will come under severe divine judgment. The only way anyone can escape eternal judgment is by faith in Christ. That's what the resurrection of Christ is all about. It's God's approval of Jesus' death on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sins, and we have eternal life with no fear of this kind of punishment at all, ever, for the person who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to learn of these things to be warned of some of the misinterpretations that cause confusion and distraction for many, many believers, but also to recognize that there are patterns through history. There's a pattern in the church age that we are to look and watch, be ready for the return of Christ at the rapture at any moment. And this pattern will be true as well in the tribulation for tribulation believers. For us, the application is to make sure that we are prepared spiritually by virtue of our faith in Jesus Christ, that we've trusted in Him. And once we believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, we have eternal life. He paid it all. He uh, completely paid for every sin, no sin that will surprise you, no sin that was left out. Uh, In your omniscience, you did not drop a single one to the ground, but they all were paid for by Christ on the cross so all that is left is for us to trust in him there's nothing we can do that's too great for your grace Father we pray that you would challenge us with what we study today and that we might live our lives in light of the coming of Christ at the rapture not like those in the tribulation understanding that difference but that we too must also live in light of his coming at the rapture and we pray this in Christ's name